Welcome to Cincy Reformed. I'm Pastor Brandon. In this week's podcast episode, I'd like us to consider Cornelius Van Til. Cornelius Van Til is someone um, whom I hold in high esteem. He is someone who um, has really captivated my theological and apologetic approach and and, and the way in which I think about these things. I'm actually focusing my doctoral work on Cornelius Van Til. And so just doing a lot of reading um, in his his writings and thinking about some of the concepts that he is uh, interacting with. And so I thought that this week I would give you an an introduction to Cornelius Van Til. Um, And this introduction, I want to first speak about his biography. Biography, a little bit of who who he was, and then get into some of the, the the theological and apologetic contours that kind of made him a bit unique. Some of the things that he's known for. So, beginning with his biography, Cornelius Van Til was born in 1895. He was the sixth child of dairy farmers in the Netherlands. Um, as he was still in his childhood, they relocated from the Netherlands to Indiana in America, and they grew up on a farm there. Van Til had a few nicknames. One of them was Big Klompa because he wore wooden shoes, as one does, I guess, if you grow up, grow up in the Netherlands. And as he walked around, he would make all this noise with his wooden shoes, and so he was called Big Klompa. Another nickname was Case, spelled K-E-E-S, which is Cornelius in Dutch. And uh, growing up, Van Til was just saturated in Scripture. Uh, He had had a Reformed upbringing, and... His his uh, father would read scripture before every meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, reading a chapter of the Bible, and so he 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 just grew up just hearing scripture read um, multiple times a day, going to church, and of course uh, all all of what that entails, being catechized, and so on. And so he, he grew up saturated in Scripture. In fact, it comes out, I think, in his writings. You know, he'll be writing, and you can just hear Scripture in the background. You know, he might not always cite this verse or that text, but it's always there in the background. Phrases that he uses or expressions he gives uh, oftentimes are rooted just from having his mind shaped by the Bible uh, at a really young age. So as he grew up, he went off to Calvin College, and he went to Princeton Theological Seminary, and in 1927, he got his Ph.D. from Princeton. Uh, After he graduated with his Ph.D., he went on to pastor a CRC church, a Christian Reformed church. It was in Spring Lake, Michigan, and he... His, his pastorate was cut short a bit. He was only a pastor for a few years, and he got a call by J. Gresham Machen to be the new professor of apologetics at the new seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary. So as the, uh, the PCUSA was moving more theologically left, 
and they were denying basic things and rejecting the authority of the Bible, and they were moving in Bardian and liberal ways. J. Gresham Machen wrote that famous book, Christianity and Liberalism, and he eventually broke away from Princeton, and he formed his own seminary, Westminster, which was going to kind of carry on that that old Princeton method, that old Princeton way that was rooted in B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge and A.A. Hodge and Archibald Alexander and all those great Princetonians. Machen wanted to carry that legacy on in a different institution because the PCUSA was growing more unfaithful and he wanted a faithful inst- institution uh, that, would, that would carry forth the reformed theology of Warfield and the Hodges. And so he started Westminster, and he wanted Van Til to lead up that apologetic department. Now, apologetics is comes from the Greek word apologia, and it means to make a defense. How do you defend uh, Christianity? And so he wanted Van Til to come and teach that course. There were two courses in, in apologetics that everybody was required to take, and still at Westminster, everyone is required to take two courses in apologetics, and uh, he wanted Van Til to kind of spearhead that. And at first, Van Til was a bit reluctant. He didn't. He wasn't um, eager to to jump into that role at first. You know, he was still pastoring and catechizing the kids at at the church and preaching every Sunday and doing all the things that a reformed pastor does. But eventually, he took up the call to um, to become the professor of apologetics and that is really what he's known for as we think back on Van Til's life he is known for being the apologetic professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside Pennsylvania a few years back John Meather wrote a really helpful biography of Cornelius Van Til it was published by PNR and it's a helpful book if you're new to Van Til, if, if you're not really sure uh, who he was, and may, maybe you're interested in l- learning more, maybe you want to kind of begin your your understanding and uh, kind of dive into Van Til and his thinking and some of the contributions that he made to uh, the Reformed Church, you might want to start with John Meather uh, and his his biography. And in his, in his biography, he calls Van Til Reformed Apologist and Churchman. And I think that that's helpful. It gives us some context. He wasn't, his his desires were not merely academic or, or ivory tower stuff. He was very much a churchman. He thought a lot about, um, a lot about basic life in the church. He was very much about Christ. And um, he, he had a heart for evangelism. In fact, the uh, professor of apologetics who's at Westminster now, Scott Oliphant, uh, told a story about when he was walking around the neighborhood with Van Til uh, prior to his passing, uh, because apparently Van Til would walk two miles every day. 
And so if you uh, came to his house or uh, wanted to talk with him, he would often have you go on one of his walks and, and you would t uh, do his two-mile loop and uh, talk about uh, Jesus and apologetics. And uh, Scott Oliphant tells the story about walking with Van Til and they would run into people. And you would they would run into multiple neighbors and and they all said the same thing they would they would look at uh, Scott Oliphant and say oh is he is he trying to tell you about Jesus too because he was so well known in his neighborhood of evangelizing of telling his neighbors about Christ and uh, that was just very much part of who who he was uh, before his passing, somebody took a, a kind of a kind of like a pilgrimage to Van Til's house and wanted to learn from him. And, and one of the questions they asked him was, you know, why did you devote so much of your life to studying difficult things, you know, philosophy and metaphysics and epistemology and learning all these wild, you know, ins and outs of all these, these philosophers and thinking at such a deep le level? Like, why, why did you do that? And Van Til said, without missing a beat, to protect Christ's little ones. He wanted to protect the people in the church from heresy, from false teaching, from the attacks of false doctrine upon the church. And he was concerned about the theology of Karl Barth. He was concerned about the idealism. He was concerned about Roman Catholicism. And there were so many things that, that were threatening the church in terms of false doctrines and false ideas and false worldviews that he wanted to um, kind of wade in that deep water in order to protect the church. And, you know, Van Til was was a a humble man with a um, simple faith you could say he he had a just a deep faith in Christ that was childlike the legacy that Van Til left and they spoke about you know even even right before he, he passed away some of their last memories of him were singing hymns to the to his nieces and nephews you know pushing them around in the in the stroller singing the hymns of the church and, uh, you know, I think these things really sum up the heart of who, who Van Til was. So that, that's the kind of biography, the biographical sketch of who he was. And again, I recommend anybody starting out with Van Til, start with John Meather's uh, biography of him. Uh, he does a great job in talking about his theology, some of the controversies he was in, who, who he was as a man, as a churchman. A very helpful book to kind of begin your exploration into Van Til. But now turning our eye to theology, kind of now looking at what are some of those theological contributions and contributions in apologetics that Van Til is kind of widely known for. And one of the first things that we want to say about his theology, his uh, approach, and one of the things that he's very well known for was that he emphasized the creator-creature distinction because he saw so many false theologies and philosophies collapsing it. He wanted to maintain God is God and we are not. And so oftentimes, in fact, um, s someone joked that he, he wrote the same diagram every single class. He would write a big circle. That was God, the creator. And then under that, he would draw a tiny circle. That was the creature, 
That was man. That was his creation. And there were two lines that went from the creator to the creature. One line was natural revelation or general revelation, uh, God revealing himself through nature. The other is special revelation, God revealing himself through the Bible. And those are the ways in which God reveals himself to, to man. And you know, as Westminster Confession of Faith 7.1 puts it, God condescends to his creatures. And uh, so Van Til would, would put that on the board, and that was something that um, was, was a launching point, you could say, for the class to think about the creator-creature distinction. Van Til made a comment about this. He said, Christian theism says that there are two levels of interpreters, God who interprets absolutely, and man who must be a reinterpreter of God's interpretation. Christian theism says that human thought is therefore analogical of God's thoughts. So in other words, what Van Til was saying was that as creatures... We need to reinterpret God's original interpretation. God has given a meaning as he created everything. He gave a meaning to every fact of the cosmos. And we, as, as, his, cre- as his creation, we are to then go out into the world, not in some sort of autonomous way that we're going to somehow uh, make it, uh, give meaning to things by ourselves, but no, there's two levels there. There's two levels of, of interpretation. There's two levels of reality. There's two levels get me because of the creator-creature distinction. There's the level of God, who is the original, who created everything. And then there is the, the layer of man, who is derivative, and he is created. And so we must reinterpret God's original interpretation. We, we, we need to find God's meaning. How did, what is the meaning God gave to these facts? And that is what we are after. So the creator-creature distinction was a massive uh, the, uh, a theological point for Van Til, and one of which he was very much famous for. Another, another emphasis that, um, that Van Til spoke about is the Bible is our highest authority. And, and again, this was something that um, he saw being eroded. Where, and, and even in some places where people would say, no, yeah, you're right, the Bible is the authority, but then they would want to put something alongside of the Bible. Maybe even human reason, where human reason and the Bible are somehow on the same level. And Van Til is saying, no, that's, that's not appropriate. So Van Til said, we cannot subject the authoritative pronouncements of Scripture about reality to the scrutiny of reason, because it is reason itself that learns of its proper function from Scripture. If man is not autonomous, if he is rather what Scripture says he is, namely a creature of God and a sinner before his face, then man should subordinate his reason to the scriptures and seek in the light of it to interpret his experiences. In other words, the Bible is our highest authority and reason operates within the boundaries of the Bible. Uh, Reason is not on the same level. 
it is subordinate to God's word. And so that was another uh, big emphasis that Van Til wanted to, to make, is that, is that the Bible is the highest authority. Another thing that Van Til was eager to maintain was we live in a personal context. There, there, there is no impersonality anywhere. But God has created the world. This is the Father's world. We're made in the Father's image. We're breathing the Father's air. And we live in a very personal environment. Our environment is not impersonal. In fact, there is no vestige of impersonality. And that was one of the things that Van Til wanted to get across, is that we live and move and have our being in the person of God. Not that we are God or somehow become God, but God and his creation has formed this personalistic environment in which, in which we live. Um, and that affects even, even the things that we know. As we go out into the world and we are living in this personal environment and we're seeing um, the creation of the Father and we're understanding the facts that the, that the Father has created, Van Til said, every knowledge transaction has in it somewhere a reference point to God. So everything we think about has some sort of reference point back to God who created that fact to begin with. And so, uh, you know, so many are wanting to do uh, uh, philosophy apart from God, and Van Til is saying that's that's simply not not possible. You you cannot do that. In fact, we are not autonomous, and that was an, another point Van Til made. We we are not autonomous creatures who just go out into the world and do our own thing, but we are always before the face of God. We are always subordinate to God, and so any sort of any sort of program of autonomy is just not appropriate for the Christian. And as I mentioned, those two lines that descend from the diagram of the creator-creature distinction, special revelation, natural revelation, uh, for Van Til, those two modes of revelation always belong together. They always go together. You cannot isolate one and say, well, that uh, special re revelation belongs here, and natural or general revelation belongs there. No, for Van Til, he says God's revelation in nature together with God's revelation in Scripture form, form God's one grand scheme of covenant relation of himself to man. The two forms of revelation must therefore be seen as presupposing and supplementing one another. You cannot separate the revelation of God in nature from the revelation of God in the Bible. And so he was you know, very much eager to, to keep those together in all that he did. And Van Til was a Reformed person. He was a Reformed apologist. And this is uh, something that one of his critiques of Princeton. So he, so he studied uh, apologetics at Princeton. But Princeton, in, in Van Til's view, uh, was not consistent with their Reformed theology. 
So, for example, he would say, at Princeton, you go into a theology class, and they teach you that uh, you know we're born totally depraved, and you'll have whole classes on what it means to be totally depraved and needing of Christ, and how, uh, and then all the things that that the fall of Adam did to us, and the noetic effect of sin on our brains, our minds, and uh, but then you go to apologetics class, he said. And they do apologetics as though the unbeliever can just um, almost be reasoned to God or somehow be led through a logical series to, to Christ. And uh, Van Til was saying there's a bit of a, a uh, disconnect here. We're treating the unbeliever in theology as someone depraved and needing Christ and the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, and then we go to apologetics and we're treating them like, well, they already have those faculties and powers and they can just do it on their own. And he said there's a disconnect here. And so he really built an apologetic method at Westminster Theological Seminary from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is a big text for Van Til, where it speaks about how the natural man knows God, but suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. Van Til said, all men not only have the ability to know, but actually know the truth. This is so even in the case of those who do not know all the truth, that they would need to know in order to be saved. All men know that God exists and is their judge. All men have become sinners through Adam's fall. Therefore, all men suppress the truth that they know. He goes on to say elsewhere that the the unbelievers are like the prodigal son whose principle requires him to deny that he is a son of his father, whom he had left, but who cannot forget his father's voice. So in principle, in principle, he has to reject the father outright and, and, and totally deny that he's a son of the father. But deep down, he can't get rid of the father's voice. Deep down, he knows that there is a God, and he is a sinner before his face. And Van Til was saying that's the reality of of everyone that we speak to. We speak to people who um, know God, and they're suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And so as we do apologetics, we're not taking a blank slate or a neutral mind and somehow just reasoning them to the kingdom of heaven, but we're speaking to someone who knows God, who's created in the image of God, who deep down hears the Father's voice, suppressing that truth in unrighteousness, and we do apologetics and evangelism to to uh, people such as that. Van Til saw that Unbelievers and believers have different worldviews. We view the world through different lenses. The the Christian views the the world through the lens of the Bible. The non-Christian views the world through the lens of whatever philosophical idea or whatever their view is. And there's no neutral view. There's no neutrality. Uh, and oftentimes you see this in, especially as you're interacting with culture, where they kind of have this idea, well, there's like a, just a neutral 
uh, way of life, n- neutral school, neutral math, neutral science, neutral everything, and Christianity is a part is a specific thing outside of the neutral, and that's just false. There are very particular worldviews, but there's no neutrality. Abraham Kuyper was dealing with this in the Netherlands when he was speaking about education, and some of those in the government wanted all the um, all of the students to go to a what they called a secular, neutral school. And Abraham Kuyper's point was. There's no such thing as neutrality. Secularism is a particular worldview, uh, as is Christianity, as is Islam, as is Buddhism, as is idealism and pragmatism, and th- these are different worldviews. And so, uh, as we're interacting with people, we're not interacting. With, uh, we're not interacting with people who have a basic neutral worldview. We're dealing with people who are in a specific. Um, world and life view. Uh, They have a a specific context and a way in which they're thinking. Now, they might not be as aware, perhaps, of of their own worldview or the way in which they think. They might not be aware of that. So if people have different worldviews, then how do we as Christians then interact with people of a different worldview? Are we just shouting at, at each other? No. Van Til spoke about the point of contact. And for Van Til, the point of contact is in the image of God. The unbeliever is made in God's image and has that sense of deity. And so as we do apologetics and uh, we give the gospel and we defend, we defend the gospel, uh, we do so realizing that the other person is made in God's image and it's getting through even if it's at a deep level. And uh, so that, that is the point of contact. But again, there's no neutrality. And so when we're interacting with the unbelieving world, um, Van Til would say, first you apply the antithesis, then you apply the common grace. Now here's what he meant by that. When you're interacting with um, a non-Christian thought, maybe it's in the realm of psychology, maybe it's in the realm of um, of scientific theories about the origin of the universe. Maybe it's in um, more philosophical camps or something like that. Whatever idea you're interacting with that's coming out uh, from a more secular or different worldview than, than, than the Christian one, we apply the antithesis, meaning first we, we discover how is this antithetical to Christianity? At what points does it fail? At what points is it false? And so you kind of dissect it in order to apply the antithesis. After you do that, you then apply common grace, meaning that you understand that unbelievers know true things because their suppression of the truth is not, per, uh, is not perfect in practice. Uh, that their principle, uh, uh, their unbelieving principle, is totally antithetical to Christianity, but in practice they don't always live up to their principle. And so in practice 
they know true things. They discover true things. They are they can be smarter than Christians in the realm of uh, medicine and science and these things. Um, and so there's many things that Christians can learn from non-Christians. Uh, be, uh, because again, God gives common grace to both Christians and non-Christians, and bestows blessings, and and uh, so we can again look at the at the unbeliever and um, glean many insights that are great. But we don't want to naively do it. You know that there there are some who might just rush to find common grace insights and not really deal with the antithesis. The problem there for Van Til is that like a Trojan horse, you're going to begin to imbibe anti-Christian ideas that are going to kind of come packaged with some of the ideas from the non-Christian. So first we find out how is the non-Christian antithetical how is this idea different from Christ? Secondly, then, what can I learn, and how can it maybe it be repackaged, re kind of incorporated within the Christian worldview? Um, because again, if we're finding a common grace insight, it's true because God, all truth is God's truth. And so when a non-Christian is saying something true, it's called borrowed capital. They're borrowing it from the Christian worldview, putting it on their worldview, and presenting it in as their own. Now, we know that all truth is God's truth, and so uh, anything true if coming from the non-Christian is God's truth, borrowed capital, and so we can, as we're glean, gleaning various insights, we can repackage those within our own so that we're more aware of them. Perhaps they saw something that we didn't see, and we can learn from uh, from that. And that actually informs Van Til's apologetic method. So for Van Til, he would say, as you're interacting with a non-believer who has arguments against Christianity and, and so forth, and you're in an apologetic encounter with someone, and you're going to demolish strongholds and all of the rest, first you deconstruct the other person's worldview. And so you'll show them why their worldview fails, why their, why their uh, understanding and their system of thought, why that uh, cannot account for things and why it fails on its own, on its own weight. Um, for example, if you think that the brain was created by meaningless chance, but yet the brain is going to understand meaning, well, that doesn't make any sense. And so you might... Uh, go into a, uh, the other other person's worldview and deconstruct it, or somebody who's saying that uh, they're upset with with immorality. Well, if you reject Christ and you think that we're all chemical accidents, where does your morality morality come from? And so again, you would poke holes and deconstruct their non-Christian worldview. Then you would construct. The, a, a Christian worldview. So first you go in and you hypothetically read yourself upon their worldview to show them that it's, that, that it fails. And then you ask them to put on Christian glasses, praying the whole time that the Holy Spirit would use that encounter for them to have their eyes open and believe in Christ. And then you would say things like, now doesn't it make sense then? 
Um, and you and you could uh, again begin to give evidences and argumentation showing as they have that Christian uh, those hypothetical Christian glasses on and say now doesn't the facts make sense given Christianity? Um, one of the critiques that Van Til would often give unbelievers is he would show them that they are caught in what he called a rational irrational dialectic. Uh, that they were caught in this tension. So he said in one place, it has been intimated that fallen man is both an irrationalist and a rationalist at the same time. His irrationalism rests upon his assumption that reality is controlled by or is an expression of pure chance. His rationalism is based upon the assumption that reality is wholly determined by laws with which his thought is is ultimately identical so you uh so so unbelievers are caught in this tension where they have this irrational idea where unbelievers will say everything's created by chance, there's no intrinsic meaning into the universe, maybe aliens populated the earth, all these weird irrational elements. And then upon the big question mark, upon irrationality, they attempt then to build a big rational system that is philosophically and scientifically robust. And it's like, how can you build this rational system, this massive building that you're constructing on this foundation of irrationality? They're going to collide into each other. And um, that was one of the critiques that Van Til would levy upon the unbeliever. You're caught in a rational, irrational dialectic. And one more point to bring up about his apologetic method. You know, Van Til was not opposed to using evidence or argumentation, but he was, he was opposed to using them in such a way that you, you treated the unbeliever like he wasn't fallen, like he could really just understand. Um, Van Til said... If the unbeliever is asked to use his reason as the judge of the credibility of the Christian revelation without at the same time being asked to renounce his view of himself as ultimate, then he is virtually asked to believe and to disbelieve in his own ultimacy at the same time and in the same sense. In other words, if you present evidence to an unbeliever and say, well, here's all the evidence for Christianity, you be the judge. You're asking him to be autonomous, to, to put on the, the judge's robe and pick up the judge's gavel and stand over top of God's word when he should be under God's word. He's not ultimate. He's not autonomous. He needs to be subjugated to God's word. And so what Van Til is saying, if we're going to use evidence, don't use it in a direct, demonstrative way, but use it in an indirect, persuasive way. And that was a big thing for, for Van Til. Van Til, his um, argument for God's existence is sometimes called the transcendental argument for God's existence. Some people um, give it the acronym TAG, T-A-G. And so here's basically what Van Til is doing when he's when he wants to argue for the existence of God with an unbeliever. Here's what he does. He says the existence of of the God of Christian theism 
and the conception of his counsel as controlling all things in the, in the universe is the only presupposition which can account for the uniformity of nature which the scientist needs. But the best and only possible proof for the existence of such a God is that his existence is required for the uniformity of nature and for the coherence of all things in the world. We cannot prove the existence of beams underneath a floor, if by proof we mean that we must ascertain them in the way that we see chairs and tables of the, of the room. But the very idea of a floor as the support of tables and chairs requires the idea of beams that are underneath. But there would be no floor if no beams were underneath. Thus there is absolutely certain proof for the existence of God and the truth of Christian theism. Even non-Christians presuppose its truth while they verbally reject it. They need to presuppose the truth of Christian theism in order to account for their own accomplishments. So what Van Til is doing when apologetics is he is saying uh, he's using an impossibility of the contrary argument that nothing could be known, nothing could be true, nothing could be um, understood without the God of Christianity. And the only reason you know 2 plus 2 is 4 is because the God of the Bible exists. If the God of the Bible didn't exist, you wouldn't know that truth. You couldn't know that truth. And so his argumentation would then be kind of showing why that would be the case, why your worldview would fail to account for all of that, why your worldview that's non-Christian would totally collapse and fail in, in showing that, and, while, and, and then also why the Christian worldview supports all of that, and it's the only worldview that supports all of that. And uh, so that is Van Til's method, wanting to be more persuasive in the apologetic encounter, not allowing the unbeliever to be an autonomous judge of God's word, but showing the unbeliever that unless you sub subject yourself to God's word, unless you are subordinate to God's word, unless God's word is the boundary for your very thought, you cannot know anything. There is no morality. All things fail. There is no meaning. And so as people think back on Van Til, they are thinking back largely in his contributions in the field of apologetics in showing us that we need to get beyond mere look at this fossil, look at that evidence. We need to get a little bit beyond that and probe deeper down to the worldview level to have that to have that worldview conversation of what can your worldview account for and what can mine account for and here's why yours is false and illusory and here's why the christian worldview is true and the whole time within that obviously speaking and interacting with the gospel in such a way that protects Christ's church and evangelizes the lost because we are not trying to win battles that are just merely mental we don't want to just win arguments and van til wasn't out to just uh to to win arguments from philosophers he wanted people in the kingdom of christ 
He wanted people to be in heaven. He wanted people to have their sins forgiven. And so uh, this was very much an apologetic encounter. Uh, and some Vantillians will actually describe apologetics as premeditated evangelism. It's hard to distinguish between apologetics and evangelism because they have kind of the same um, hope and prayer in view, and that is that people would be saved, that they would hear the gospel, that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes. And that was Van Til's hope. And so I hope that this podcast has been helpful in maybe introducing you to, um, to Cornelius Van Til, someone who was influential in both the Reformed world when he was, um, was with the CRC, and then later on as he switched to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, and his work at Westminster Theological Seminary. So again, if you want to begin your journey into Van Til, I, I do recommend starting with John Meather's biography, Cornelius Van until Reformed Apologist and Churchman. And also in the show notes page, I'll put a few of his, um, of his works, of his, of his books. Uh, if you want to begin reading some of his works and some of his thoughts in theology and apologetics, I will put that in the show notes page as well. And so with that, I hope you have a blessed rest of, of your week, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Again, Cincy Reform Podcast is sponsored by Westside Reform Church. You can visit us at westsidereform.org, and you can visit our other episodes from cincyreformed.org. Have a blessed week.